been a good day, hasn't it, church, already? I'm still a little wet from uh, baptism. That's okay. Uh, it's a good reminder to me of my own uh, salvation that was purchased by God's blood in my own baptism when I was seven, if I remember correctly. And uh, God is good, isn't he? He's uh, raising up an army of Jesus followers here at Harvest, isn't he? And it was good to see three little soldiers already following the Lord, committing to the Lord. So, um, and one of the things we want to do as they're growing up is teach them the scriptures. But there's a, there's a warning about that in Romans 2, 12 through 16. And I, I want to take some time to unpack that. You know, Paul's argument, we're in our series, by the way, for those of you who are visiting, our series is entitled Holy and Holy from the book of Romans, chapter 1 through 3. And, you know, Paul Paul, the author of this book, he's, he's building arguments in Romans 2 through 3 that, to be honest, will grow increasingly complex as we work through it. And I, I don't want you to be intimidated by that complexity. We're going to work through it verse by verse until we understand what he's saying here. Keeping in mind always that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us, right? The argument in Romans 2, 12 through 16 it's something like this. Knowledge of God, knowledge of his law doesn't protect us from judgment. Knowing isn't enough. That's the argument here. That's the title of this message today. Knowing isn't enough. You might say to me, Pastor Tony, I know the Bible. I know the Bible. I've been in Sunday school since I was just a little guy, since I was just a little girl. My parents are Christians. They've been teaching me about the Bible forever. That's great. That's fantastic. But did you respond to that knowledge with faith? Knowledge is not enough. You got to believe. You got to believe the right things about God and the right things about the overarching message of the Bible. Let Let me just underscore this point with a quote from Jesus, all in favor of hearing from Jesus this morning? Are you all in favor of that? Okay, good. Yeah, good person to quote, right? This is one of my favorite quotes in, uh, from Jesus in the scriptures, and it's a sobering statement about a, a knowledge-only approach to the scriptures or to religion or to discipleship. This is roughly 30 years before Paul wrote Romans, and Paul and Jesus are addressing the same issue. Jesus says this, He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. You think that in the scriptures you have eternal life? No, they bear witness to me. Jesus said that to a group of religious zealots who were angry at him for healing on the Sabbath day and for calling God the Father, Father. They were angry at him and they they kept They kept retreating back to their knowledge of Scripture. We know the Scriptures. We know the Scriptures. And they ignored the ultimate witness of the Scriptures. They trusted in their knowledge of the Bible, not the God of the Bible. And I'll just tell you, you know, as I was working through this this last week, elders, listen up. This this passage is incredibly terrifying to me as the pastor. It It should be to you as elders, because Harvest Decatur, we're a Bible church, Bible church, Bible church. That's who we are. We're all about the scriptures. We teach the scriptures in Harvest Kids. We teach the scriptures in Harvest Students. Right, Ryan? Amen, Ryan? We teach it in our small groups. We study it in small groups. Every Sunday, I'm here getting crazy in front of you about the scriptures. You know this is my heart, and I love this. I love the scriptures. And 
By the way, we're 100% committed to that moving forward. But you've got to realize, we've got to realize that knowledge isn't enough. Nobody gets saved by knowing the scriptures. They get saved by faith in Christ. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, says Jesus. You don't get eternal life from knowledge of the scriptures. You get it from faith in Christ. And the scriptures bear witness to me, says Jesus. And by the way, some of you right now might say, I know that, Pastor Tony. I'm saved already by faith, not by knowledge. I'm saved by faith, Pastor Tony. Good, good. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Romans teaches. But here's a question I think you need to just search out in your own heart. How about your growth as a Christian? How about your growth as a disciple? Is it knowledge acquisition only? If I know, then I'm growing. If I know these things, then I'm growing. You know, your, your whole approach to life, your whole approach to church, your whole approach to small group is just accumulate, accumulate, accumulate more and more knowledge. What does the Bible teach us? That we need to be doers of the word, not just hearers, not just knowers. We need to live this out. So wherever you are this morning, whether you're unsaved in need of that knowledge of salvation by faith alone, or if you're a saved follower of Jesus, that you need to know that your, your following of Jesus needs to be more than just knowledge acquisition. You need to be a doer of God's word too. I, I think God has something here for us in Romans 2, 12 through 16. And I want us to be open to the Holy Spirit as he teaches us this morning. Are you open to that? Can I pray for you and for me in that way? Let's pray now and then we'll get into it. Oh God, this is, this is so important. And I, I tremble before you now in fear if in any way, Lord, I've conveyed as the pastor of this church that salvation is a matter of knowledge. It's not. And Lord, would you help the men and women in this room to, to know that they're, Their knowledge needs to be transcended by faith. And we need to walk by faith and live by faith and be doers of the word, not just hearers. So help us with that. God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, even convict where needed, where maybe our discipleship growth, our discipleship process has stagnated in a pattern of knowledge acquisition only. And God, help us to hear your word today and apply it, I pray. God, I pray that you would do that. Help your servant now. Help me, Lord, expound the text and teach it in a way that, Lord, would edify your church. I pray in your name, amen. All right, here we go, church. Write this down as number one in your notes. I'll give you three points from the passage this morning. Here's the first. Knowledge of the law doesn't make one righteous. Knowledge of the law doesn't make one righteous. Paul says in verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now this statement and this argument is built on what Paul has already said in verse 11, that statement about God showing no partiality. I'll show you that in just a moment. But I want you to know that that Paul Paul is like, He's building an argument here like a, like a builder builds a house. 
He just kind of structures it step by step, this argument. And the foundation of that argument is Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Gentile or the Greek. Then he puts up the walls of his argument with his house. All Gentiles are sinners before a righteous God. That's the end of Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. And all Jews likewise are sinners before a righteous God. That's Romans 2, 1 through 11. And then for the rest of Romans 2 and Romans 3, Paul's, Paul's building his house. He's putting up the roof and the plumbing and the electrical and the fixtures and the HVAC system. This is what Paul does in Romans 2, Romans 3. And then finally, he does that final walkthrough and makes sure, make sure, uh, make sure that the, the argument is sound. And he, he gives us one last statement, Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the argument. That's Paul's house. And part of the, the infrastructure of Paul's argument here is this key statement in verse 11. We looked at this two weeks ago. God shows no partiality. God is no respecter of persons. And it's almost as if Paul, even as he says that, he knows that there's going to be an objection to that. It's almost as if Paul immediately addresses the protest. Wait a second, Paul. There is favoritism, isn't there? Doesn't God show the Jews partiality? Isn't he partial to them? Doesn't he favor them by giving them the law? He gave them the law. He didn't give us, us Gentiles, the law. They got the scriptures. They've got advantages over Gentiles who don't have the law. And Paul says, yes, they've got the law, but their destiny apart from Christ is the same as those who don't have the law. That's the argument. For all who have sinned without the law, Gentiles, will also perish without the law. Perish is a statement of judgment. They will die in their sins and be punished eternally for their sins. And all who have sinned under the law, Jews, will be judged by the law. Those who have the law will be judged by the law. They, they will be condemned too because they can't fulfill the law, not perfectly. And, you know, there's actually a greater negative to having the law because they're worthy of greater judgment because they had this knowledge that others didn't. Jesus alludes to this when he, he talks about these Jewish cities that rejected him. He said, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Matthew 11. Jesus said it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So obviously, according to Jesus, there's these different levels of judgment, depending on how much people know. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum had more knowledge of the truth than Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. So they will be judged more harshly. The people in Jesus' day, the people in Paul's day, thought they were secure because they had the law. It was like a talisman. We got the law. We're okay. If we have the law, we're okay. And Actually, Jesus and Paul both say it's, it's actually more hazardous to your house that, that to your health that you have the law because now you brought yourself under greater judgment. Since you have the law, you will be judged by the law. Knowledge of the law doesn't save you. In fact, it makes your judgment worse. That should be a terrifying thought for us as elders of this church. As it should be a terrifying thought for those of you who grew up in this church, who are maybe teenagers now, who grew up in a Christian home. You know better. You know better than other people what the Bible says. You know more. 
Jesus said this, I quote this to my son all the time, to whom much is given, much will be required. That's the kids of Harvest Decatur. You know, way, way, way before Spider-Man. With great power comes great responsibility. People quote like that, like it's the greatest philosophical statement ever known to man. Jesus alluded to that. To whom much is given, much will be required. That's you, kids of Harvest Decatur. To whom much is given, much will be required. But here's the thing you got to keep in mind. Knowledge is not what saves you. Knowledge actually makes your judgment worse if you don't have faith in Christ. Write this down as number two. Knowledge isn't enough. Knowledge of the law doesn't make one righteous. You might say, well, I go to church too every Tony, every, every Sunday, Pastor Tony. <laughs> you know, so I'm hearing the word every week. Hearing the law doesn't make one righteous. Hearing the law doesn't make one righteous. Paul says in verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Here's what Paul's doing here. Paul's, everybody listening? Paul's threading a needle with this statement. He's trying to address two groups of people. Martin Luther talks about this this in his commentary. He's trying to address first the Gentiles, who might say something like this, but Paul, how can you say that God doesn't show partiality? Look at the Jews. He's partial to them. They have the law. They've been hearing and listening to the law their whole lives, and we Gentiles don't have that. Paul says here, yes, but those who have the law aren't justified just by having the law. They have to do it. They're not justified by just hearing it. They have to do it. They have to do it, and you know what? They have to do it perfectly, perfectly. And if they aren't perfect, they'll be judged by it. So that's, that's one side that's, that Paul's addressing. But then there's also the Jew who's saying naively, oh, I'm good. I'm good, Paul. You know, I, I got the law. You know, we're good. We're okay. I'm okay. You're okay. We're okay. We got the law. It's our talisman. They've, they've been hearing and listening to the law their whole lives. And Paul says to them, no, you're not okay. If you have the law, you will be judged by the law. And you don't get justified by having the law or even hearing the law. You have to be a doer of the law. The doer of the law is the one who will be justified. And here's the thing, too. In order to be justified by the doing of the law, I, th- I think this is strictly hypothetical. You have to do it perfectly. Absolutely Perfectly. Jesus said, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect as your heavenly... Yikes. Anybody want to try that? I don't need Jesus, Pastor Tony. I'm going to try that. You sure about that? No, thank you. That's not going to happen. And so, I mean, what's Paul's argument here? We need another way. We need another way. Jews and Gentiles both. You know, Paul Tripp, he's talked recently a lot about what he calls grace-based parenting. And I love Paul Tripp. I love this book. Parents, if you're looking for a good book on parenting, read this book. And one of the things that he says in his books is that we need to be careful as Christians not to raise up little Pharisees in our churches. You know what I mean by that? Yes, we should be disciplinarians in our homes. Yes, we should have good laws, if you want to say it that way, for our children. It's, it's healthy. It's good for them. But if here's what he says. If your love for your children is dependent on them fulfilling the law, 
or if your acceptance of them is dependent strictly on behavior, you're actually doing them great harm. And here's why. There's, that, that harm is manifested in two different ways. Either they will rebel completely against you and against God because they can't keep the law. And they know that your love for them is conditional, conditional on them keeping the law. And they, and they, they wear out and they quit. And, and actually, that's the best of the two possibilities. Hopefully, later in life, they'll understand grace that you didn't teach them. And they'll come back to Christ or come to Christ, ultimately. Now, that's the best of two possibilities. The other possibility is that you'll raise up little law-keeping Pharisees that think that they're okay before God because they have, they're God's gift to obedience. And they do right, and they grew up in the church, and they're good law-keepers, and they deceive themselves about the sin that they really have in their hearts. They deceive themselves and they, you know, they minimize their own sin and they, they kind of, you know, maximize the sin of other people and they, they've got to keep themselves subjectively, you know, better than the rest of the world and they, they marginalize their own sin. They have to do that to maintain a semblance of acceptability before God. And they grow up to be self-loving, self-righteous, people-hating hypocrites. And that's not good. So what's the solution according to Trip? What's the solution? You guys know the solution. We teach them grace. <laughs> we teach our kids grace. We teach them repentance. We teach them that you can't be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And that's why Jesus came to die on the cross for their sins. Right? Parents, can I get an Amen. Some of you have raised kids. Y'all should amen the loudest. Help out the younger parents in this church. I can't remember where I first heard this statement. I, I think I heard it from Russell Moore, but I, I love this. The goal of Christian parenting isn't raising good kids. It's raising gospel kids. That's our goal, and that's different. Good kids, gospel kids, that's different. If you don't know the difference as a parent, you better figure that out as you're raising them. So let me just contextualize that statement for our discussion here in Romans 2. We don't want to just raise kids to know the law and obey the law. We want them to believe the gospel. We want them to embrace the gospel. We don't want to just raise kids who are knowledgeable about the scripture and hear the scriptures. We want them to believe the scriptures. We want them to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know, you know, as your kids, them getting saved, that's a Holy Spirit thing, isn't it? That's between them and the Lord. You can't believe for them. They have to believe for themselves. But, but you can tell them, and you should teach them, and I'll, I'll help you. Knowledge isn't enough, Junior. Hearing isn't enough. You can't just go to church. That's not enough. Having me as your parent who believes in Christ is not enough. You need to internalize these things. You need to believe for yourself. You know, all three of the kids that got baptized today, I want you to know, we, we interviewed them. What, what are we looking for as elders? We're looking for faith. We're looking for that transformative thing in their heart. The Holy Spirit starting to work in their lives. And I know sometimes the parents freak out and they're like, well, he's, he's still a sinner. Yeah, yeah, so are you. <laughs> that doesn't mean he's not saved, you know? What are we looking for there? We're looking for remorse, repentance. We're looking for that Holy Spirit that's working in their lives. And I'm not saying we do that perfectly, but that's what needs to happen in their little hearts. It can't happen that young. Oh, yeah, it can. Oh, yeah, it can. Jesus said, you need to be more like these kids to his disciples. 
He rebuked them and put up the kids. It's like, you need to have faith like them. Yeah, it can happen in their lives. It happened in my life when I was six, seven. Write this down as number three. Knowing isn't enough. Hearing isn't enough. Also, here's a third part of Paul's argument. Awareness of the law. Written on the human heart isn't enough. It doesn't make one righteous. Awareness of the law doesn't make one righteous. And if you need to add that statement, written on the human heart there as a qualifier, that's, that's what Paul's talking about here. And this last point needs some explaining, so, so stay with me here. Paul says in verse 14, get your Bibles open, verse 14, here's what he says. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. That statement there, they are a law to themselves. It doesn't have the negative connotation that we, we have when we say, you know, like if I were to say to somebody, well, that guy, he's a law unto himself. That means that he just makes up rules, his own rules, and he doesn't care about anybody else's rules. That's not what Paul means here. It's not negative. He means that the Gentiles actually have access to the principles of the law that the Jews have. Some Jews have the law. They have it written down. Sure, they have it written down. They can read it. They study it in their synagogues. But Gentiles have something, too, written on their hearts that we would call natural law. C.S. Lewis says it this way in Mere Christianity. He says, everyone has heard people say things like this. How'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. The man who says this is appealing to some standard of behavior which he expects the others to know about. This clearly demonstrates that there's this law, this law that's written on our hearts, that we have an understanding of right and wrong. Even if we never read the Bible, we know this. So let's just do a thought experiment here. You know, why do the Romans in Paul's day, why do they outlaw stealing and punish people who do it? Why do they do that? Why do tribes people in Papua New Guinea right now outlaw stealing and punish people who do it? They've never read the Ten Commandments. They've never read the Bible. The Roman, it's not like the Romans went and took the Jewish scriptures and said, hmm, okay, well, it says in Ten Commandments we shouldn't steal. Let's, out, let's outlaw stealing. They didn't do that. They didn't do that. So why? Why do they have this moral code that they developed that says, essentially, thou shalt not steal? Why do people get married in every culture of the world? Why is adultery frowned upon on every, in every culture of the world? Why not just have indiscriminate sex with as many people as possible? Like the animal kingdom, right? Why don't we do that? Why don't we act more like the beasts? Why not mate indiscriminately with the opposite sex and kill anybody who gets in our way? Why don't we do that? Last night in our backyard, there were two bucks fighting, you know. There's a reason they're doing that. Why don't we do that? Some people might say, and this is the argument in our world right now, you know, the reason we don't do that is because we are highly evolved mammals with bigger brains than them. I'm sorry, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. The evolutionists might say, you know, we're highly, we're highly evolved beasts. Bigger, we got bigger brains than our primate cousins. 
that still doesn't explain why we have things like marriage and honor things like fidelity and honor things like civility. I hate to go back to the animal world again, but just bear with me with this. When a male lion kills another lion for trying to horn in on his pride full of lionesses, nobody puts that lion in jail. Are y'all with me? We don't do it, and the lions don't do that. And nobody thinks of that as like a, a moral evil. Why should that be evil for us? Why don't we do that? Even people who have never read the Bible, they, they, they don't think we should do that. Even people who have never read, thou shalt not commit adultery and thou shalt not kill. Why is that wrong for us? Why is that wrong for us? Here's why it's wrong. Here's why it's evil. You need to get this. You need to have this ready too, apologetically, when people talk about this. God has written law on our hearts. We are not beasts. We are not. And the evolutionists are crazy if they think that we just somehow evolved into being moral creatures. God put that there. He put it on our hearts. And so we know, even if we've never read the Bible, we know that's not right to do that. So Paul says this. You got the argument? Everybody got the argument? Do I need to get more animated? Or you got it? Paul says, when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, it's, it's inside of them. They, they know by nature what God requires of them. Do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves. That's a good thing. That's good that they are a law to themselves. That's, that's good for society that there's that law written on their hearts. Even though they do not have the written law. They, they might not have the law, but they have law written on their hearts. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them. Now, Paul took a complex argument and he just made it more complex. Here's what he's saying. He's saying it's good. It's good that we have this law written on our hearts, but it's ultimately bad. It's good. It's good that we have this law on our hearts because it restrains the effects of sin. It teaches us what we should do for the best of society, for the flourishing of human society. But it's ultimately bad because we have this law thing inside of our hearts and we don't always obey it. True or false? Sometimes we're wicked. Sometimes even our society creates laws that make wickedness good. So we have this law in our hearts, but we don't always obey it. We're, we're sinful, and just like the Jews who have the law and disobey it, we have this law written on our hearts, and we disobey that too. And what Paul is saying here, here's why it's ultimately negative. We have this law written on our hearts, and we can't keep up with it. We, we, we have this thing in our heart that says we shouldn't steal, but what do we do? We take stuff that doesn't belong to us. We steal. We have this thing written in our hearts that says we shouldn't, we shouldn't lust after another person's spouse. But what do we do? We lust. We envy. We hate. We have murderous thoughts towards another person, even if we don't murder them. And so 
we're ultimately violating the law of God. We're ultimately guilty before God, and we're condemned for that. That's what this verse is about. What are we going to do about this? This is, this is depressing. We're condemned. Jews and Gentiles, both, we're condemned. What are we going to do about that? Before I get to the answer of that question, let me just tell you, it gets worse, okay? It gets worse. It's even worse than you think. Because the law in our hearts, just like the written law for the Jews, it condemns us. Paul says there's this law written on our hearts, and there's this thing inside of us called a conscience. Y'all ever heard of that? You see that in verse 15, the conscience? And this, this conscience is testifying constantly about our success and our failure at obeying the law in our hearts. Our conscience is constantly accusing or excusing our behavior. You guys ever seen like a movie or a TV show with like a good angel on one shoulder and then a bad angel on the other shoulder? Y'all ever seen that before? It's a pretty popular thing. The example that comes to my mind is Kronk from the Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> he's got good Kronk who's dressed up like an angel. And then he's got bad Kronk who's dressed up like the devil. And bad Kronk makes fun of good Kronk because he's wearing a dress and he can't do one-handed push-ups. Y'all remember that? Even if you've never seen that movie, I know you've seen something like that because it's, it's I mean, it's a pretty popular trope in uh, TV and movies. And some of you might be wondering right now, is that, Pastor Tony, is that what the Bible teaches? Is it like that? Little demon on this shoulder, little angel on this shoulder trying to get us to do good or bad things? No, of course not. That's silly. But I will say this, Romans 2.15 is, is pretty close. It's pretty close to that, but, but instead of an angel and a demon trying to get us to do stuff, Paul says here that our conscience is active inside of us, accusing or excusing our behavior. So, another thought experiment. We steal something. There's something inside of us, our conscience, after we steal that, that says, that's not right. You shouldn't have done that. By the way, beasts don't have that. Come to my house sometime. I'll show you my cat. She has no conscience. <laughs> she is all instinct. But when you steal something, there's, there's something that, that's not right. You shouldn't have done that. That's wrong. But then there's another part of your conscience. There's that, let's say, sin-stained part of your conscience that says, don't worry about it. No big deal. You needed it more than that guy needed it. It's probably best that you did steal it. He was probably envying some other things. Oh, you're punishing him for that. It's okay. Right? Right? We're all more like Gollum in Lord of the Rings than we like to admit. There is a war going on, on inside of us. We hurt somebody. Maybe our kids, maybe our spouse, maybe our coworker. And part of us says... Don't worry about it. They deserved it. They deserved it. And you know what? You've had a hard day. You've had a rough day, rough week. You, you needed to let that out. And then there's that other part of your conscience that says, you're a monster. How could you do that to them? You, that was horrible. You say you love them, but how, how can you love them when you act like that? And there's this war going on inside of us, accusing, excusing. Accusing, excusing all the time, and it never stops until we go home to glory. 
And actually, there's people who get to a place where they completely shut off the accusing side of their conscience, and that's not good, by the way. They sear their conscience, as Paul says elsewhere. And you might wonder, you know, how, do, how does somebody like Joseph Goebbels become such a soulless monster who would want to exterminate all the Jews? How does that happen? How does somebody like Joseph Stalin kill millions of people so indiscriminately, without a conscience, like a beast, like an animal? Well, it's because they seared their conscience. They turned off the accusing side of their conscience, and they just, they just listened to excuses. It happens, and then there's other people. There's other people. There are good people in this world, noble people, admiral people, who aren't believers, who have turned off the excuses side of their conscience and have listened to the accusing side and have tried to perfect themselves and tried to be good and tried to be right. And in many ways they are good, but they'll never be good enough. They'll never be good enough for salvation because we can't eliminate the sin that sticks to our soul like super glue. You can't do enough good to dislodge that. You can't do enough good deeds to get the stains out of your soul. And so Paul says in verse 16, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. Some of you might say, yay, yay. Finally, we get to Jesus. Paul's been talking for too long without Jesus. All this judgment, judgment, judgment. Finally, we get to Jesus, and we get to the gospel. Paul hasn't mentioned Jesus since the beginning of chapter 1. He hasn't mentioned the gospel since chapter 1, verse 16. Careful now. What's, what's the context of Jesus here when he shows up? You might think that this is Jesus and the gospel, and Jesus is swooping in to save us from our sin and to say to those of us who have faith, you are saved from your sins. That's not what Paul says. This is that part of the gospel, and it's amazing that Paul calls it gospel, you know, good news. This is the part of the gospel where Jesus swoops in and punishes everybody for their secret, wicked thoughts. This is still judgment. And Jesus judges all of us as sinners. He condemns all of us as sinners. And Gentiles on that day when Jesus shows up, they might say, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't have the Bible. I didn't know you shouldn't steal murder and envy. And Jesus will say, yeah, you did know. I wrote it on your hearts and you are guilty. You are unrighteous before a righteous God. And every secret in our heart will be exposed Every evil thought, every evil deed will be brought to light. You know, Francis Schaeffer, how many of y'all know Francis Schaeffer? Y'all familiar with that term? Philosopher in the mid-20th century, wrote a lot of books, good man. He, he, said, he said that there's this invisible tape recorder that's playing constantly. It's hanging around our necks. Only good. You kids know what a tape recorder is? Y'all ever heard that before? And, you know, when we go to the judgment, God's just going to play that tape recorder. And he's just going to hear every single thing we've ever did, every, everything we've ever thought even. And Schaefer says, you know, even if God only judged us for the way that we judged other people, we'd be guilty. Because, you know, we judge other people for being hateful 
play the tape recorder. Well, you know, you've been hateful. We judge other people for being lazy. Play the tape recorder. Well, you know, you've been lazy. We judge other people for being thoughtless and insensitive. And the tape recorder doesn't lie. We've been thoughtless and insensitive. And even if God only judged us by the standards of the judgment that we used with others, we would be condemned. But we know that God doesn't just use that standard. He uses an objective standard of perfection. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. That's what we got to do. Your, your tape recorder, when it plays before God, you better be perfect. Anybody want to go that route? What are we going to do, Harvest Decatur? You know, as we read Romans, it just gets worse and worse and worse. Like, what's our solution here? We are condemned if we don't have the law. We're condemned if we do have the law. We are condemned if we don't have it because it's written on our hearts. We're condemned if we have it because it speaks about our judgment and we're judged by it. And in fact, this law in our hearts will actually accuse us and condemn us in the end. What are we going to do? We might as well just go to Culver's and eat ice cream and just wait for the judgment. At least we can eat some ice cream before Christ comes back. What are we going to do? Should we quit teaching the Bible? You know, Pastor Tony, you know, this, this knowledge thing is going to make the problem worse. Are we going to, should we just stop? Elder, should we stop? No, we're not going to stop. Don't worry about that. What are we going to do? Can I just say something right now about my teaching of the Bible? Everybody listening? I don't teach the Bible so that you might get saved by me teaching the Bible. I don't teach the Bible so that your knowledge acquisition might save you. I teach the Bible so that you might know that you're a sinner who needs Jesus. That's the message of the Bible. And then on the other side of that, I teach it so that you can grow as a Christ follower. You're not getting saved this morning because Pastor Tony's teaching the Bible, whether he does it good or he does it bad. You got to, transcend knowledge with faith faith in a savior who saw you in your wretched con uh, condition faith in a savior who saw that you are lost without him and he came to earth and he took on human flesh and he was crucified on a cross and he died and was tortured so that you might have your sins paid for and as Elise said Earlier, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And we believe that too, don't we now? That's how we're saved. Knowledge of the Bible doesn't make you righteous. Hearing the Bible doesn't make you righteous. The natural law written on your hearts doesn't make you righteous. It's faith in Christ. It's faith in Christ that justifies me. It's faith in Christ that justifies you. Christ makes this unholy person Holy, holy before a holy God. That's the only way. That's the only way. And Charles Simeon said this. I mentioned him a few weeks ago. This single believer, pastor, preacher. He said, there are but two objects that I have ever desired to behold. The one is my own vileness. <laughs> he gets it. I'm a sinner. And the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I have always thought that they should be viewed together. 
I am simultaneously a sinner and a saved saint because of what Jesus has done for me. I'll close with this, and then we can sing together. Worship team, why don't you go ahead and come up and just prepare for a final song. Actually, worship team, you're going to like this because my final illustration is about a musician and a hymn writer, actually a man named Paulus Sparatus. Sparatus was a Catholic priest who got imprisoned and sentenced to death, although the death sentence wasn't carried out and he was released into exile. Sparatus eventually went to Wittenberg and he helped Martin Luther create the first Lutheran hymnal. He wrote a hymn called Salvation Unto Us Has Come. And I want to just read some stanzas from this hymn for you. I can't help but think that Sporadus, when he wrote this hymn, he wrote it after an extended time of reading the book of Romans. It just, it just sounds like Romans as I read it. And here's what he wrote. He wrote, salvation unto us has come by God's free grace and favor. Our works cannot avert our doom. The law can save us never. Faith looks to Jesus Christ alone, who for his people did atone. He is our one redeemer. And then he wrote this in stanza two, and I think this is where the Romans' allusions come in. He said, what God did in his law demand, and none to him could render, caused wrath and woe on every hand for man, the vile offender. Our flesh has not the pure desires. God's holy law of us requires and lost is our condition it is a false misleading dream that God his law had given so sinners could themselves redeem and by their works gain heaven the law is just a mirror bright to bring the inbred sin to light that lurks within our nature that is so insightful doesn't it sound like the book of Romans who writes music like this he says this. This is the depressing part of the hymn. For sin our flesh could not abstain. Sin held its sway unceasing. The task was hopeless and in vain. Our guilt was air increasing. None can remove sin's poison, dart, or purify our guileful heart. So deep is our corruption. Can you believe that? That whole stanza right there is all negative. You're a sinner. Let's just go to Culver's and eat ice cream. We're doomed. What if the song ended there? But thankfully, it gets better. He says, yet as the law must be fulfilled or we must die despairing, Christ Jesus came, God's wrath, he stilled our human nature sharing. The law he has for us obeyed and thus the Father's vengeance stayed, which over us had ruled. Yeah, yeah. You want more? Last stanza, here we go. Since Christ has full atonement made and brought to us salvation, each Christian therefore may be glad and build on this foundation. Thy grace alone, dear Lord, I plead. Thy death is now my life indeed. For thou hast paid the ransom. What do you say, church? Amen.